0: Luke chapter 15 is our text, and as we jump into to Luke 15, uh, kind of the scenery changes. If you recall, uh, pretty much most of chapter 14 is about Jesus showing up and being invited to dine at the house of um, one of the Pharisees, uh, and he is there. On display, and uh, he kind of continues with this theme of calling people to uh, respond to him, to follow him, not just to be hearers but to be doers. Uh, and in the process, um, as he puts forth this call, what what we saw in the previous passage, as we looked at last week, was the the um, message that Jesus brings to those who. Would call themselves Christians, who would say, "If you are going to um, to follow him, if you are going to um, be considered one of his disciples," he says that you ought to count the cost. You ought to make a determination about um, what it's going to cost you, and and he lays out there uh, these two kind of examples of someone who um, is uh, going to build a tower, and they. Before they begin to build, they uh, assess their resources. Do they have uh, the, the equipment that they need? Do they have the building materials that they need? Because the last thing that you want to do is uh, begin a building project and get you know, halfway there or three-quarters of the way there and all of a sudden realize you don't have enough to finish it. You've not counted the cost. You've not prepared and, and realized what it would take to, to finish that. And he says, if you're someone who, who does that and you get halfway through and, and you don't have enough, really what happens, the result of this, is that uh, the people who are watching you start off on this journey, they will begin to mock you saying, you didn't even think it through. Like, how foolish is it for you to, to start down this path and not really finish it? And there, as we said uh, last week, Not only will that be the case, but uh, this half-built structure is really a monument to that foolish beginning, uh, that failure to count the cost. And then he gives us other example of a king who is going to go out to war, and he's, he gives us this example of a king who has 10,000 men, and yet he sees at a distance that there is another king who is approaching who has 20,000 men. And he says, what king would not assess whether he can defeat the king with 20,000 men with his 10,000? As he looks at their military might and their strategy, uh, their, uh, the way that they would deploy on the battlefield, the way that they would go against this other king, he would begin to first assess, can we win? And he says there, if you cannot win, if you cannot have victory, the wise thing that that king would then do would be to go and send, a, um, he would send a group of people out to make a treaty, to make peace with this king, with the much larger army. He doesn't say that we would fight. Uh, he doesn't say that we would send these men out into battle to lose their lives. Uh, but he says that a perfectly uh, good choice would be to um, operate in a treaty, in a, a surrendering of, um, to, to this other king who has a much larger army. And so he doesn't say that you shouldn't start things. He just says that you should know what it takes. You should understand what it takes. He doesn't say that uh, you need to have everything right away. Um, You know, you don't have to have all of the building materials right away. You don't have to have all of these things in order to begin the project. What he wants you to know is what it will take to do that. In the case of this man who has the army, he is Uh, under-resourced. This king who has 10,000 instead of 20,000. And he doesn't call him a failure for uh, offering this treaty to the other king. He says that that's wisdom. He doesn't say, well, you know, the only thing that he says is there is you shouldn't try to have your own way and go out and fight when you're under-resourced. He sees that this opportunity to surrender is a perfectly valid uh, way to have have a a good outcome. And this, uh, I think, is what he is getting at when he says here that you ought to count the cost of what it means to follow him. And he finishes this section about uh, in verse thirty-three of chapter fourteen, and he says, "Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple." And so, what Jesus has been saying there is that uh, he does not want to be in competition with with anybody else. If he is who he says he is, uh, then he deserves all of the honor. He doesn't want to be in competition uh, with anything else that would uh, take our attention away. That would distract us from being in a relationship with him, uh, that that he is to be the most prominent, the most supreme um, thing in our lives. That he calls us to say, uh, above all, that he is one that we are pursuing, he is our greatest treasure. And so he calls us to have that singular focus that he is that great delight, he is that treasure. And then now as we come into um, chapter 15, we begin to see Jesus lay out uh, another type of example of the relationship between God and man. He's laid one out in the previous chapter in verse 14 there about what it means to receive the invitation to the banquet, to make this choice that God is our ultimate treasure, that Jesus is worth more than anything that we could pursue, uh, and that we should be willing to to give up anything that would distract us from entering into that relationship. And then as we come now into uh, verse or excuse me, chapter 15, we see that there is a new relationship beginning, a new group of people that are highlighted here in verse 1. He says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Now, of course, uh, it seemed throughout Jesus' ministry that he often would attract those who were outwardly sinners, those who were on the outside. He was a contrast to the religious leaders, where uh, he didn't feel as though he would be contaminated by those who uh, were sinning, those who were uh, who were walking in these unrighteous ways. Whereas the, the religious leaders, they wanted nothing to do with tax collectors, wanted nothing to do with sinners. Jesus, uh, when he spoke, it seemed that he drew this, this crowd uh, of people who would not typically be drawn to religious people. And in doing so, you see that they hear and see the power of his words, the power of his message, that which he is communicating. And so, although he begins to to uh, speak with this message that is clear, that is uh, speaking to the authority that he has, that he is holding a very um, uh, specific message that calls all people, to change their lives, to repentance, these people, they seem to, to want to participate in that. They seem to want to be near to him. The, the Pharisees, they don't respond and they don't hear, but this group of people, the tax collectors and sinners, they are continually drawing near to him. The message is getting more intense and they get closer and closer to him. And it seems, perhaps, that uh, maybe some of these have acknowledged Jesus as, uh, as who he says he is. They're still described as tax collectors and sinners, uh, but it seems that, that this is precisely who was willing to hear what Jesus was saying and willing to change their lives around. Now, these people, I think, are doing exactly what Jesus said that they ought to do. They are people who have been categorized by people who are living in sin, and uh, they are categorized by the time, by the um, society of their day as being uh, tax collectors and sinners. Uh, but they are drawing near to Him who has a difficult message to hear. And I think what's happening here is that this is an example of of a people who are following the words of Jesus that He calls us to in Luke chapter 14 verse 26. Uh, If you recall, this is what he says is the cost of discipleship. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So as we said last week, those are difficult words. And does that mean that Jesus wants us to be um, bitterly angry towards those people who are our family or our friends? No, that's not what he's getting at there. But what he is getting at there, when he says that, he says that our affection for him would be so strong uh, that our love for him would be so intense that the way that we would uh, interact with other people in these categories—father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters—it would it would look like hate in comparison. That we would be so, we, our allegiance would be so great to him that uh, these other things would look like we we hardly care about these other people in contrast to how greatly we care about Jesus. And it seems here that these people are trying to walk in this way because even though this message that Jesus says uh, condemns their unrighteous acts, they seem to be willing to deny their own lives. They seem to be a people who are trying to be his disciples And so this is often what you find with Jesus. He gravitates towards sinners. But the contrast there is that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they don't. The rulers of the synagogue, the scribes, the masters of the law, we find in verse 2, that they grumble. They complain. They're upset. Here's what they say in verse 2 this man receives sinners and eats with them so they resent the fact that jesus is spending time with these people who are sinners who are tax collectors who are in their minds that they deem to be unworthy of uh, of this relationship and with this time the Pharisees, obviously, do not show uh, kindness or grace to these people who would have been social outcasts due to uh, the category of their behavior, um, and so they see that Jesus is operating in a way that would be different than, uh, than they would. Now, after this period takes place here, where Jesus is um, in this particular moment, the uh, Scholars have writings that have been produced by other rabbis of this time, uh, and so this, uh, in, in their writings, um, they recorded a particular set of instruction that would have been given to other religious leaders of this time. Uh, and in this collection of writings, uh, they gave this instruction to others who would be um, in this situation. They say this, let not a man associate with the wicked, not even to bring him to the law. So they put prescription in place, the rabbis, after uh, this incident uh, and a little bit later in time, they put a prescription in place to say, if someone is wicked, don't even go near them, not even if you're trying to bring them to righteousness. Just keep your distance. For those people who are wicked, they're on their own and it's up to them to to uh, find their own way, to get to uh, the place that they need to be at. And so their complaint here uh, is with Jesus' proximity to those who are sinners, who are unrighteous. Now, this isn't the first time that they've uh, expressed this uh, displeasure with Jesus' attitude and what he has done. If you look all the way back in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 5, we find that when he began to call uh, Matthew, or who uh, at the time then is called Levi, who is a tax collector, uh, he has a feast uh, in chapter five, and we find that Levi made a great feast in his house in five twenty-nine, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. So Jesus is hanging out at this feast. In Levi's house, who was a tax collector, he's eating with other tax collectors. And then we find in verse 30 of chapter 5, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So they are upset about it all the way back then. Uh, If you look at chapter 7 of Luke's gospel, you find that there is a sinful woman, that they don't like him being around. Uh, Typically, this is something that they are very upset about. And for you and I, maybe it's not as um, impactful in this moment of Jesus eating with tax collectors and sinners because it's kind of like, okay, we're just having a meal here. But uh, within this time and within this culture, eating in this way together would have been particularly irritating to the religious leaders because— What it meant and what it suggested to them was that um, we are associated together. We are friendly, that we have a relationship, that um, I am willing to receive you and to to have fellowship with you. And and, and so this would have been a particularly uh, irritating situation obviously this is the case because uh back in chapter 14 if you recall jesus gives this parable of of the the great banquet there and and in the process of explaining this this wonderful feast he makes it clear that he's interested in extending an invitation to those who are social outcasts he extends those to uh, the uh, invitations to the lame to the blind to the uh to the poor he is more interested in in those who respond to god's invitation than he is in those who ignore it and so in this particular instance as the pharisees are upset about this jesus is willing to welcome those who are tax collectors and sinners and so they grumble they complain and then jesus says okay let's deal with the situation He presses in and speaks to them of a parable that we find in verse 3. So he told them a parable, and he said this, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? So he poses this parable of this man, a shepherd, um, who would have... uh, a hundred sheep. This is about like a, a, a like a middle amount of sheep, right? It's not like a an extremely wealthy person, but it's not a poor person by any means. Uh, this is somebody who has enough. Um, and, and here, a shepherd would be out in the fields and letting the sheep graze. and And as uh, dusk came, he would begin to gather the sheep and would count them uh, to make sure that he had every Uh, sheep that went out with him, and before putting them into kind of their uh, pen for the night. Uh, And and in this particular story, as he's counting them, he comes up one short. And so he launches out into what would be a pretty typical search to find uh, this single sheep. He leaves the 99 kind of in this uh, pen area, probably with uh, somebody else, to go off and and look for this missing sheep. And the lost sheep, Jesus is indicating for us, receives special attention over those who are safe and sound. He goes off to find that one sheep that is missing, that is lost. It gets extra attention precisely because it is lost. And then we find in verse 5 the result. The search proves fruitful. Here's how he goes on in verse five, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. So the shepherd goes out, he searches high and low, he looks in every area, he finally locates this sheep and he picks him up and he puts him on his shoulders and carries him home. He takes care of this particular animal and brings him back to the flock. He cares for this particular sheep. He goes out and finds that which is, is lost. And as he says this, of course, this would have uh, been a clear allusion to uh, their practical lives uh, that they were very familiar with, with these practices at this time. But it's also an allusion to the scriptures. He's speaking to the masters of the scriptures. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 11, He speaks this way. Uh, God, uh, or he cites kind of this in in a roundabout way, citing God's care. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So it's said of God that he is going out and he's going to gather uh, and care for his flock. He's going to be a shepherd who will watch over this flock faithfully, and he's going to take up those defenseless lambs, the uh, the weak lambs, right? It's the it's the most young of the sheep. It's the most inexperienced there, and he's going to carry this himself close to his heart. He's going to carry them in his bosom, and he's going to gently lead those with young. He's going to walk them in. It's the it's the care of of God for His sheep. That uh, is kind of a backdrop to what Jesus is saying to these shepherds. They know this from their society uh, to see this practical example of the shepherds interacting with the sheep. They know this from the scriptures, and you know, of course. There are always outliers. There are always outliers. There may well be shepherds who are like, oh, it's just one sheep, you know, like, what does it matter? Just leave the one sheep. Who cares what happens with that sheep? Don't worry about that. You got 99 other sheep, not a big deal. But what Jesus is saying here is that with God, he's extremely worried about every sheep. He rejoices over the return of even a single sheep. It's not simply God rejoicing over the safety of those who are are together, but he's rejoicing over the one that is lost and that is recovered. And so the discovery of this single sheep, this single individual, is a massive cause for joy. This is God's heart for the lost. And this would be A stark contrast to the attitude of uh, those that he's interacting with here, the scribes, the Pharisees. As they are upset about tax collectors and sinners, Jesus says God's heart for the lost is to rejoice over this single sheep as he finds him and puts him on his, his shoulders and carries him home. Now, it's not just that, right? It's one thing for, for the Pharisees and the scribes to say, okay, whatever, like the, the, the um, shepherd, he cares for the sheep. He's got a deep relationship with the sheep. He's, you know, invested in the sheep. So, of course, he's happy when he finds this, uh, this one sheep that is gone missing. But that's not where the shepherd stops. If you look now, we see the continuation in verse 6. Jesus goes on in his parable. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. So the shepherd, he doesn't just rejoice privately. He doesn't just say, this is my sheep that I lost and I'm just so excited that I found it. He calls together everybody for a big party to rejoice together. His expectation is that his friends and his neighbors they're going to have the same excitement the same joy over his um, lost sheep that was found over the discovery of the sheep the expectation is that the shepherd wants his his those who are closest to him to have this same type of joy of course he is alluding here to a great celebration at the recovery of one lost sinner. He says so in uh, verse 7. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. He's focused on highlighting the fact that how much joy one repentant person brings to God how much joy one repentant person brings to God's people how excited that that we ought to be at one person who reorders and changes their life around remember back in chapter 5 at that same situation there where Levi had this great feast with all the other tax collectors and the Pharisees and the, and the scribes are all upset about Jesus spending time with them. And Jesus responded to them and he told them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He tells them, you guys are all upset about me spending time with these tax collectors, those people who you're upset with, but these are the people who need help. The people who are broken, who are sinful, they need help. You should be happy about this. There's a rejoicing that takes place, that ought to take place over anyone who repents from their sin, who changes the way that they are thinking about something and saying, you know, I've really been thinking about this only in my way, but we ought to be thinking about it in God's way. When, when someone makes that change, when they move in that direction that causes us, it should cause us to rejoice. Now, two things. There's a word there that is for those of us who are trying to walk with the Lord already and we see someone who is trying to make this choice to reorient their life to be to move from being a, a someone who is lost, to someone who is found, who is found by the Good Shepherd. We should always rejoice at those who are, um, who are sinners who are coming to repentance, right? Because the, the gospel tells us that that was all of us at one point, that we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that we have all been sinners, we have all been lost sheep, and we are all being gathered in by a wonderful and kind and Good Shepherd. But then there were those of us who are the lost sheep and a lot of times the thing that keeps us lost is that we're worried about what all the other sheep are going to think about us we're like man like i don't want to like change or repent or say i was wrong or say that i was weak or say like you know like i went and got lost i did something stupid and i went out there and i got lost and i fell off a cliff and i got all injured because we want to pretend that we're strong a lot of times the thing that keeps us uh, from, from changing our lives and repenting is because we're too prideful. But what Jesus says here is that we ought not to be prideful whether we are sheep who are collected with the others or whether we are lost sheep. Because he calls everyone to rejoice at, at uh, the discovery of anyone who is lost. So the playing field is level. You don't have to feel like, well, you know, I can't do that because everyone's going to think like I'm new or I'm stupid or like I should have had this figured out a long time ago. Jesus says, if you have that attitude, you're acting like the Pharisees. If you have that attitude, uh, you're acting like the Pharisees. And so the expectation is that we rejoice over every lost sheep and those who might be lost sheep can have confidence that everyone's going to be excited that they're showing up, that they're found. That we rejoice over every single person. Now, I want you to see this before we jump into the next parable. In the previous section, in chapter 14, we find that Jesus puts forth these incredibly high, um, these incredibly high standards for what it is to be his disciple. He starts off, Uh, You know, I mean, even going back all the way into chapter 13, chapter 12, he goes on to say that again and again and again and again that he is the greatest treasure in this life and that we ought to give up everything to find him. He makes this point. He's said very far back in the Gospel of Luke that so much so that we ought to be uh, willing to lose our lives for his sake. That we might be found in him. And then last week, as we looked at the text, he says something similar there. As he says, um, right? if if you must be willing to, to give up all things, father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, even your own life. He puts this incredibly high cost out and he says, that is what I'm worth. I'm worth more than all of those things. You must be willing to, to say that I am supreme above all else. An incredibly high cost, right? That's what that's what he's getting at here. But then I want you to see this. As we move into chapter 15, he doesn't just say, well, you know, like the Pharisees were expecting, if you really want to follow him, you got to figure it out on your own. As we come into chapter 15, the highlight of this opening section is that we are worth incredibly, like so incredibly much to him that he leaves the 99 to go out and find the one. He doesn't just say that you have to give up everything to follow me. He says, I'm willing to, to leave the 99 and to go find the one. You're so precious to me. You're so important to me that I'm going to, to, to leave the safety. I'm going to head out and to discover you. You are my treasure, is what Jesus is getting at. And so while we make him our treasure, he promises to go and find us, to discover us, to pursue us. And so it's not this disproportionate thing where it's like, oh, everything's on us. No, as you come to find out, there's way more on him. He goes way further than than we are asked to go. We're asked to go just a, a minuscule amount compared to the distance that he goes. Chapter 14 is about the cost of discipleship and our pursuit of God. But as we come into 15, we see that this is about God's pursuit of people. He's coming after us. Jesus descends now into a second parable in verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? So here's the deal, right? This is lady. She's got a house. She's missing a, a silver coin. She's got ten. She's missing one. Basically, the idea is this. This is kind of a uh, uh, like a a woman who has kind of a modest sum of money, one coin equals one day's worth of of work, right? So she loses one. She's got 10. She loses one. It's one day's worth of work. It's not like the worst. This is not the best situation, right? No one's sad about losing like one day of pay out of 10 days. But it's like, it's not going to kill you. It's not the end of the the world for this person because uh, we see from her, uh, from her home, she's got like kind of like a, a middle of the road home. She she is uh, in a in a situation where she doesn't have a house that has windows. Uh, based on the fact that she's got to light this lamp, she is uh, set up in in such a way that um, she has the means to look for it. She's got she's connected with some friends, uh, but we find here that um, she loses this coin. Now this coin. It didn't go far, right? She's got one room, no windows, and basically she she can't find it because uh, she she's mostly just can't see and might it might just be like in a dirty house. Uh, the, the coins at this time were not super round, so it's not like this thing rolled like way out of the house and f- flew away, right? You're kind of like looking at something that, you know, probably went like a few feet, right? Maybe into the corner of, of the house and is covered up by dust. Uh, rather than like it rolled out of her doorway and down the street and like it's not like this like incredibly like difficult thing to find here but what we do find is that she is taking the time to look for this she sweeps her house she pulls out her broom she's looking around in the corner searching through the debris picking up uh, you know things trying to find it we find in verse 9 when she found it she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying rejoice with me for I have found the coin that I had lost so she also rejoices at it and then she calls together her friends now the idea here is this okay Jesus is trying to paint the picture that like this isn't some extreme example of like oh my gosh, like, you know, she had one day's worth of pay and she was going to die tomorrow if she didn't find this one. Like, this isn't this, like, extreme thing. Like, this is, like, a pretty generic situation. Like, she was looking for something and, and that, like, it wasn't going to be, like, a make-or-break situation. But he still is requiring a response of, of number one, searching for it. And then, number two, a, a communal um, celebration, you can't just be like, well, you know, that person, like, they, they weren't really, like, their life wasn't, like, totally out of control, so we don't really have to, like, be excited about this one, this person, like, they, they you know... It wasn't like a really wild like, person who came to Christ. Like They were like, you know, probably born into a home and both parents were Christians and like, they like, raised them in the faith and like, all of a sudden that person like, kind of decided and, like, that they were going to walk with Jesus for the first time as their own. Jesus says, that is a totally worthy uh, moment of celebration, just as much as you would find the extreme in the other way. Nothing is boring to Jesus. Nothing is boring about sinners coming to repentance. He doesn't leave it to us to uh, have these different levels and categories of like who's worthy and who's not. There is rejoicing even in this. And so he tells the Pharisees this lady, she rejoices. She calls her friends and neighbors and she says, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. And so there he's implying to the Pharisees that you also ought to rejoice over the salvation of the tax collectors and sinners. He frames it out this way in verse 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So this is a parallel verse, of course, to verse 7. In verse 7 we read, That there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then he tells them again in verse 10, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. That there is a party, a celebration happening each time someone decides that they are going to repent of their sin, that they are going to trust Jesus. That they are going to reorient their life around Him. There is a call on the individual to make this choice. But God is going to go to a great effort to put these people in the opportunity to have great joy. He's going to put them in the opportunity to um, find restoration. In himself just as he calls every single person that we saw in chapter 14 to count the cost and to choose him above all else in the same way he has decided that he would care for the sinner he would care for the one who was far from him he would go to great lengths he would go distances To find and discover each person to make that invitation obviously the pharisees weren't doing their job as israel's leaders they were intended to uh, lead god's people into uh, a relationship with him to call them to repentance to uh, do the work of connecting the dots from God's heart for the lost, and making a way for them to repent and to change their lives, they were supposed to do this work. The Book of Ezekiel includes this description in kind of an, an extended metaphor, um, as the people of Israel are described as a flock of sheep, and they are given this this description of unfaithful shepherds it seems that this would be um, analogous to what's happening here but we find that God himself will raise up a faithful shepherd in the stead of these unfaithful shepherds if you look at Ezekiel chapter 34 you find this written the word of the Lord came to me son of man prophesy against the shepherds of Israel prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? That's a legit question there. That's like your job, it's your only job, like feed the sheep, take care of the sheep. He says, you eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with with force and harshness you have ruled them. So the, the pronouncement of judgment over them is precisely that they didn't care for the weak, the sick, the injured, the stray. They didn't seek them out. They didn't go looking for the lost. There's a word of judgment that's being delivered over them. And then he goes on in verse 7. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord as, the, as I live, declares the Lord God. Surely because my sheep have become a prey and sheep have become a food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have, no, have not fed my sheep, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand, and will put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock, when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. He goes on into verse 16, and he says, I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. You see, God is is jealous to make sure that his sheep are taken care of. He says, your job was to go out and find the lost sheep. Your job was to go out and seek those who are injured and broken. Your job is to go out and and bring them so that way they can be healed and they can be fed and they can be taken care of. But instead, you're just feeding yourself. You're just taking care of yourself. He says, I'm going to do this. I will deal with it myself. I'm going to make it happen. And of course, it's no surprise that this is one of the reasons why Jesus describes himself and his work in these terms in John chapter 10. We finish here. John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my Father. So Jesus says, He is that good shepherd that's being talked of, that's being promised, that He will seek out the sheep Himself. He's going to find them. And he is going to uh, locate every sheep. He's going to bind them up. He's going to heal the injured. He will go out and do it. And so while he is that good shepherd that's going out to seek his sheep, we see that in contrast to the call for us to be the sheep that are willing to hear the voice of the shepherd and to respond. We are to be, in con- as, as a contrast, to do our job, while he seeks for us, we are to be uh, a people who see his surpassing worth. His treasure. That he is our treasure. That he is to be supreme and above all. And that we are counting the cost of discipleship. We are determining that we are going to be a people who are going to renounce all that we have, to give up our allegiance to everything that we have, because we have a shepherd who is out seeking us, who is out seeking to, to carry us back, to bring us into, uh, on, onto his shoulders, and to walk us back into safety and security. So while the call is high for us to respond the demand that was required of Jesus to come and rescue us was much greater. It was a much uh, larger ask than what we have to do. He had to give up his life. He had to lay down his life for the sheep so that we might have entrance into his family. And so it's my prayer that we would be a people who are Constantly in the process of repenting, because we get lost easily, we get distracted easily, and it and repenting is not something you only do one time. You know, of course, we blow it a lot, we sin against God a lot, and we need to reorient our lives. And when we do that, the scriptures tell us that there's rejoicing. Uh, when we repent and decide that we are going to be a disciple and follow him and count that cost and say, I'm ready to, to follow Jesus, of course, that is a moment of great rejoicing. A moment of us uh, acting together in excitement over what God has done in our lives um, and in the lives of others. And so we are a people who repent and we rejoice. We rejoice at God's goodness. We rejoice that people are treasuring God rightly. Uh, And we go in this this cycle of of joy together. And so it's my prayer that we would grow in in both of those things. That we would grow um, in our frequency of repentance and our frequency of rejoicing. And delight in him as we go along the way. And so... Operate in humility and in weakness. Don't worry about protecting yourself. Step into that confidence that he has given to us as he welcomes us into his family. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word and for the scriptures, and we ask that you would give us um, instruction by your Holy Spirit. We want to respond to who you are, we want to respond to you being at work in our lives, Um, and as you call us to reorient and to change our lives, we don't want to be stubborn, but we want to hear that call, we want to see that you have gone to great lengths to rescue and save us, and, and we want to respond and say thank you. Uh, and so work in our hearts this morning as we repent of sin, as we, again, recommit to walking with you, as we um, operate as in moments of worship, as we rejoice over what you've done and what you've accomplished. And we need your help. We need your help to do it because sometimes we're a little bit stubborn and sometimes we don't, we don't really want to deal with reality, um, but, but we need your help. And so we want to rejoice um, over what you've done. Thank you for loving us and for, for pursuing us. Be at work in your church, Lord. We love you. Amen. Amen. Let's respond together.